Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, here with today's co-host, chiropractor, doula, wife and mother, Kristen Palisi. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Of course. Today, we're going to be talking about labor induction. We're going to talk about indications, methods, and outcomes with OBGYN, author, and now chief of staff, Dr. Allison <laughs> Hill. Welcome back. I'm moving up in the world. What is that like, chief of staff? What does it even mean? It's like herding cats. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm trying to make everybody get along, play nice oh, with each other. That sounds like a tough job. Between the board of trustees, the administration, the medical staff. I bet if anybody can do it, it's you. We'll see. I'm, I'm 11 days in. I can't so. imagine people being <laughs> mad at you. You're just so. I'm trying to, yeah. That's I'm a peacemaker, apparently. You're a peacemaker and good like, communicator. Yeah, I hope so. Without, we'll see. Without being a toe stepper. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Good luck with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations. Uh, we want to talk about labor induction and augmentation. Um, it's it's first of all, I'll I'll say as we always do, but especially today, that our discussion is, shouldn't be construed as medical advice. We're just giving information to help better understand your various factors and options, and to help you be a part of the decision making together with your healthcare practitioner. So, uh, induction and augmentation are things that come up for my patients all the time, and for our listeners all the time because they write in about it. And uh, it's something that people often have to make decisions about without having good information about. Uh, so why don't we just start at the very beginning and talk about the terminology. What is induction and what is augmentation? Yeah. So labor induction means that we are starting a labor that hasn't started. Um, it is about 30% of pregnancies in the United States are induced. Really? One in so three? One in three. So one in three are induced. One in three get a C-section. So it's a oh, interesting. very few <laughs> that very... Not that many actually go all natural. Uh -huh. um, so labor induction is when we're starting from scratch. Labor augmentation is when somebody is in kind of an early phase of labor, a prodromal labor, and um, they need some help to get things moving along faster. Okay. And and um, what are some of the reasons why we would induce? So there are two reasons total, which are actually medically proven legitimately legitimate reasons to be induced. Those two are preeclampsia. 
Okay. And the post-date pregnancy, meaning greater than 42 weeks. Okay. Well, let's break those both down a little bit. Preeclampsia, what does that mean? So preeclampsia is a condition of hypertension that is the result of pregnancy. Hypertension is high blood pressure. High blood pressure. So it usually, um, preeclampsia usually starts in pregnancies at some point after 20 weeks. There's mild preeclampsia, there's severe preeclampsia. But for patients with severe preeclampsia, um, the only way to cure them of this disease is to deliver the baby. So, so it gets dangerous after a while. It is dangerous for the mom. For the mother. Yeah. So um, as... But we uh, care about her. Yeah, we do care about moms. And uh, for moms with very dangerously high blood pressure, if it's not treated, um, they can have what is called eclampsia, which means they have seizures. And um, it's one of the most common reasons for death during pregnancy. Oh, wow. So it's serious. Yeah, it's serious. Um, It affects about 5% of pregnancy. So not particularly common, but there's enough of it to go around. Um, and the only cure for it is labor induction and delivering the baby. Is it something that somebody would feel? Like, ooh, I feel like maybe I'm preeclamptic, or is it just you're doing your weekly visits or whatever, biweekly visits, and you see the high blood pressure? Most of the time, people have no symptoms that they're aware of. And mm-hmm. so one of the very important you know, components of prenatal care is checking the blood pressure at every visit, and that's exactly why it's checked. Mm-hmm. Preeclampsia is more common as you get closer to your due date, so that's why our prenatal visits become more frequent, um, and at every visit, the blood pressure will be checked. So if your blood pressure is persistently higher than 140 over 90, you're considered to have mild preeclampsia. And if your blood pressure is higher than 160 over 100, you're considered to have severe preeclampsia. Oh, wow. But what about somebody who normally has 100 over 60? So if they go up to 120 over 80, could that be a sign for them? That it could, it, it, there can be some changes, like if, it, if somebody jumps up about 30 points on their blood pressure, that for them could be a sign of preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. It's usually, though, also um, goes hand in hand with having protein in the urine. So when you're pregnant and you go to the doctor's office and every time they want a urine sample, they're checking for that protein. That's not just for fun? Not just for fun. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, So the combination uh, helps us to make the diagnosis. And for some people, they not necessarily had high blood pressure before pregnancy, right? Right. It can happen to... It can happen to anybody. It happened to me. Oh, really? Yeah. I was a severe preeclamptic with HELP syndrome at 29 weeks. What's HELP syndrome? HELP syndrome is a subset of preeclampsia where people also have um, liver dysfunction, um, platelet dysfunction, meaning their blood stops clotting right. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Is that something you feel? Um, you know, I did feel a little funny yeah, <laughs> when all that happened. How many weeks were you when it happened to 29. You? Oh, early. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I was induced. So, yeah. At what? 29 weeks. You were induced at 29 weeks? Yes. Yeah. Whoa. I know. Yeah. So that was my, <laughs> my drama, you, of course. Were you already practicing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, as an OBGYN, all the weird stuff happens to you. So, um, yeah, one day I went to work and I was feeling a little funny, almost kind of foggy in my head. And I went to work, and but I was busy, and I was running around delivering a baby. And then I was like, maybe I should take my blood pressure. Something feels funny. And sure enough, it was like 180 over 110. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so you were like severe. I was severe right from the get-go. Yeah. And um, like 28 is, right? Is that the week of like yeah, this baby's going to make it? It was but a little were... dicey. It was a little 29. dicey. So I was 29. Um, 
They gave me steroids for the baby. And uh, so the baby would be. So the ba- they give us uh, steroid shots so that the baby's lungs develop more quickly. Um, and so they gave me some steroids. We waited 48 hours and then I was induced. Wow. So, wow. yeah, how about that? Look at that. Three pounds. Three pounds. <laughs> yeah. I gained three pounds today. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> I, I had a three pound peanut. Had a big lunch. But, yeah. Uh, wow. So that is a it, situation. What were you planning on for your birth? You know, I thought I would go up there and pop that baby out and run back to work. And <laughs> I thought it would just be like a walk in the park. Never dawned on me I would get severe preeclampsia. Wow. So um, it can happen to anybody. I didn't have any medical problems. And I mean, there were. Is it recurring if it happens once? Do you when it happens it so severely, um, it's more likely to recur. And mine did recur with my second pregnancy, but not until 36 weeks. Hey, that's, oh, wow. So yeah, must have I made felt it like pretty forever. Far. Yeah. So <laughs> I got induced twice. So okay. I'm all about, I know all about the induction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had but the right it, person on But it was here. definitely one of those situations where, um, you know, had that not been an option, I probably would not be around. You know, so it, in that sense, induction can be a great thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I always like to point that out, like how mm-hmm. amazing medicine is. Yeah. And the interventions are when we use them, you know. Yeah, Sparingly. I mean, th- people in third world countries die from pre- preeclampsia all the time. So, you know, we're we're lucky we're able to detect it and we're able to um, – to induce when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you mentioned is going legitimately post-date. Yeah. So going legitimately post-date, <laughs> meaning going past 42 weeks with good dates <laughs> um, and legitimate dates. Um, so that um, the studies actually do show that after 42 weeks, there is a benefit to the baby in an induction. A benefit to the baby. Does that mean to say leaving the baby in beyond 42 weeks could be... Could have a risk, a negative involved. effect yeah. on the baby. Could have a so negative to prevent that, right. we start induction, and the benefit of the induction outweighs the downside of induction, whatever that is that right. we'll talk about. After after forty two, not, not after forty one, and not after forty. But I mean, <laughs> right. we do yeah. see it a lot. Of, like, but they 40... grow so quickly at that point, right? Because right. they, I mean, they just like exponentially grow yeah, the longer yeah. they're in there. They're... Yeah, although sometimes it looks like they start to plateau after after the due date. Yeah, that's, that's true, true too. too. Yeah. Um, like they've um, reached their growing capacity and now they're just, you is, know, is that late mo- checkout. Is that it. mostly due to space or is that like what is the reason? That they don't grow as rapidly? No, that or... after the 42 yeah. weeks that it's better. Better. The, um, the uh, placenta poops out. You know, mm. so the placenta. It's only got about a forty-two week contract. Yeah, so the placenta <laughs> yeah. just isn't quite as good as delivering oxygen I, in general. Sense. I mean, obviously there, are, you know, there's a lot of variation with that, but those are really the only two situations that have been medically proven to be beneficial. Okay, mm-hmm. we see induction for all sorts of things. People are told their fluid is too high or the fluid is too low or the baby's getting too big or the baby's not growing as much and is too small. Um, What do you do with that kind of information? I mean, what is too big, too small, too much fluid, too little fluid? I mean, the studies on this topic show that for those that you just listed, there is no medical benefit. To inducing. To induce. Yeah. It is better to let nature take its course, though that rarely happens. (laughs) I mean, is there, in your mind, is there, someone may electively say, that seems like a big baby, I just want to get induced. Right, 
Right. I mean, the obviously the big issue with the baby size as an indicator for induction is that our ability to measure the baby from the outside is really tough. So the <laughs> you know, ultrasound is not a scale. Yeah, it's just not that accurate. So we overestimate, we underestimate. There's a lot of different factors involved, and so um, that's why. And that's why exactly. Like if if a baby truly was say ten pounds, and um, and it, you know you thought it was, and it actually was then there might be a benefit. It's just that there's so much variation in our ability to determine that, that it's it doesn't work out, you know? Do you remember the biggest baby you delivered? I delivered once about a 13-pounder. Vaginal? Wow. No. Okay. But it actually... It, like, was that hard to get out? It was really hard to get out. And I mean, it was, yeah. And it was one of those. Not, you still have she, to get it she out. She went into labor. She got to about eight or nine centimeters. And then it was like as if the baby headed back the other direction. Whoa. <laughs> like it was almost like the baby knew I'm not this, going vaginally yeah, right. and started retreating. I sometimes do that. I'm like, that tunnel's too small. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look good. My and, kids yeah, would be like, Dad, come on this slide with me. I'm like, ah, it's not meant for me. Yeah, <laughs> the baby was quite low. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't anymore. It was gone. <laughs> and so. So did you know the baby was going to be really big? We knew the baby would be quite large because she'd had a really big baby before. Oh, this was oh. a second, second baby. Yeah. Oh. Wow. And um, both she and her husband were really tall. <laughs> oh. And so we had a sense it was really big, but it was just, you know, we didn't, I never guessed that big. Do you remember so, the biggest vaginal? Vaginal. Birth? I know I for sure I've delivered 11. Mm-hmm. Vaginal. Wow. That's still really big. It's yeah. still really big. It's big, but it's doable. I mean, it's we, doable. Have, we have you an know? episode called Labor Day Surprises where uh, woman, her name is Sarah, has an 11-pound baby, all naturally, no meds, and not even a tear. Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing for women, because, gosh, that, that phrase, your baby's getting big. Oh, God. I mean, it that just kills people because the truth is we don't know whether it is or not. We might have a general idea, but um, it scares people. You know, it scares the mom and it scares the doctor. Sure. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, the moms kind of lose, you know, they get nervous themselves. Um, but I really, what kind of what the studies show us is that the best thing you can do if your baby is larger than average is to go into labor spontaneously, you know, because that will allow the baby to hopefully rotate into the correct position. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the best chance of a vaginal birth that way. Mm-hmm. I think there was a study that showed um, when women were told that their baby was quote unquote big, the average size was seven pounds eleven ounces? Really? See, Whereas the average size in this. general is seven pounds four ounces, so it's not that much different than, than <laughs> average. average. Than average, yeah. I have a theory about this. The the ultrasound has a known margin of error of at least a pound in either direction, or a pound and a half. So if they said seven, you know, seven pounds was the measurement, it could be anywhere between six and nine pounds, exactly. which you can sort of predict without an ultrasound. Right. <laughs> but I think that as you know, as doctors, we're always looking at where the risk could be. And so I don't think they're looking at like, oh, maybe this baby's too small to come out. You start to think maybe this baby's too big to come out. Yeah. So within the scale, I think we often more predict on the bigger side than the lower side. And then you have those predictions of nine-pound baby that comes out at seven very regularly. Exactly. But once in a while, it really is nine. Or we were wrong and it was 10. Right. But I can count like from my patients on like one hand how often we're off – by a lot in the other direction. Absolutely. One of them famously was a VBAC where her doctor said, if the baby's measuring over eight and a half, we're not doing a VBAC. And the vet, baby never measured over eight and a half and came out at 10 and a half. <laughs> so that baby exactly. knew. It was like scrunching yeah, exactly. up. Was like, I won't measure. <laughs> exactly. Making little shadows on the ultrasound. <laughs> so funny. That's, 
Um, what about IOGR? So on the other side of, uh, of the coin, if your baby's measuring small or in, we're worried about intrauterine growth restriction, where yeah. the can't grow inside anymore. The studies on IUGR also show that induction is not beneficial unless there's something that um, famous term that everybody loves, that reverse diastolic flow. So when that... That's when it one gets, of my favorite terms. Favorite, favorite <laughs> terms. Reverse diastolic flow means that the placenta is so crummy that the blood is actually flowing the wrong direction oh, okay. during a certain phase of the um, heartbeat cycle. So like mm-hmm. the, the resistance in the placenta has gotten so high oh, I see. Um, that the blood flow, you know, normally no matter what, the blood is always flowing toward the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this, the blood actually flows away from the baby. Like when people siphon gas out of my tank. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it's not supposed to do that. Um, so that's a very severe case. You can see it on the ultrasound? Um, They can see that on ultrasound. Yeah. So uh, like a perinatologist would do Mm -hmm. an ultrasound and they can actually – so they call that the Doppler flow. Mm -hmm. So they'll actually – they can actually like watch the blood flowing and so they'll see it flowing backwards. Wow. Um, So that's – that is a severe case. But for most cases of IUGR or or the small baby, um, you know, the truth is most of them are just small babies. Right. Especially if if they're proportional. Yeah. They're just – Just small. Yeah. I, I also we just had a case recently where uh, we had a, a woman who's exactly five feet tall and her husband's five foot two and her baby was measuring small and her doctor was freaking out. I'm like, yeah, mm, right. I'm yeah. doing the Look math. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be nervous if your baby something was even you know average that I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, what what is placenta calcification or aging? So, you know, again, our placentas do get older, um, and as they get older, they calcium starts to deposit within the placenta. And you can see that on ultrasound. And it has a very distinct kind of look to it where on the ultrasound, the placenta has these little white spots all through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's getting calcified. Um, again, though, that is just a normal part of the aging process of the placenta. And unless it is associated with where the blood isn't flowing right, it's not anything that needs to have anything done about it. But is, is it measured in degrees, like first no. degree, second degree? No. No. It's just – You just see like a you, lot of calcification, yeah. and but it's not scary it as shouldn't long be as you scary. have blood flow. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of people so get scared by it. So calcification is not necessarily a <laughs> predictor that, that the placenta is going to cramp out early. No. No, it's just right as you get right around the due date time is where we usually start to see it and as people go post-dates. But again, as long as the blood flow is normal, then... Some people get gray hair at 20 and they live live to 120. Yeah, exactly. It's just a sign. Uh, Fluid levels. What's a normal fluid level at the end of pregnancy? Well, so we, you know, we measure something called the amniotic fluid index. The AFI, AFI, which is where we measure the amount of fluid in four different quadrants on the mother's belly. And usually we like it to be 10 or above. As you get closer to the due date, again, because the baby gets bigger, there's not as much space for fluid and the baby's not urinating as much. The fluid starts to go down. So usually by by term, we're looking somewhere around eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be all the way up to like over 20. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's always been this this term called oligohydramnios, mm-hmm. meaning low fluid, and that is generally an AFI of five or less. Okay. Um, but again, isolated oligohydramnios with no other issues um, is not a reason for induction. According- Monitor more closely? 
Not even necessarily. If it's the only if it's the only finding, then no. Go home and have a drink. Yeah, but that's not what usually happens in real life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Most uh, yeah. people with low fluid get induced. Or but... or polyhydramnios on the other side. If right. You start to measure above the. Uh, yeah, the... like twenty five or so. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you said that the fluid is the baby's pee. So, yeah, they're just um, floating around in a big thing of urine. So <laughs> yeah, and it sometimes affects yeah. positioning too because if you have. Uh, 24 cubic centimeters of fluid, baby can kind of float around more than other babies and sometimes flip back, flip flop back and forth. Yeah. So uh, just an Olympic sized swimming pool, that's all. Um, exactly. <laughs> that they made. <laughs> are, are there, uh, did you have any of these at the end of yours, Kristen? Um, no, I did not. Everything I, measured good? Everything measured good. I think I was a little on the high side, um, but that helped. Um, Later, I think, because I was had a posterior baby, um, and they were able to help the baby like rotate, rotate because I think I had a little bit on the higher yeah. side. So it comes in handy sometimes for sure. Yeah, <laughs> um, but aside from that, um, I didn't have any of that. I had I also had meconium, and the, the you could see the meconium on the ultrasound. No, when I my water broke. Oh, when your water broke, you mm-hmm. had meconium. Yeah, so. Those are my special highlights. <laughs> Everybody gets something. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so when you when you do induction, you're 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 starting labor that didn't start on its own. Yeah. So it's sort of like an eviction notice. Yeah, <laughs> and it's hard on your body. I mean, it, it's not you know it's not the norm. Um, normally, the time leading up to labor. Um, takes weeks of preparation, you know, where your cervix is softening, your baby is rotating into the right position. You know, all of these things are are going on probably for four to five weeks before you go into labor. It kind of seems like the the initial approach into the Los Angeles area, you know, and yeah. then <laughs> the final approach into yeah. Los Angeles where all those wing flap maneuvers right. are happening. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in there, especially having to do with cervical softening and ripening. So and, let's talk about the cervix a little bit more. The yeah. cervix is the opening between the uterus and the birth canal. Right. And what's the difference between ripening and softening? I guess pretty much the same thing. I use those terms interchangeably usually. So, so you're, the different things that you're looking at towards the end, because there's the Bishop score. Yes. Right? So we're looking at things like normally I would say if you felt someone's cervix, which I do all the time, um, your cervix feels like a nose. Like it feels like the firmness of the tip of your nose. Right. Um, and so as you get closer, though, to the due date and when you're going to go into labor, um, your cervix starts to get a lot more squishy and um, thinner. And um, and it kind of rotates a little bit within the pelvis. And there's a lot of things going on in there. So And you're feeling for all those in your pelvic exam? Yeah, when we do a pelvic exam. So when... Um, when that cervix starts to ripen, the early stages of that are probably happening at least, you know, a month before you actually go into labor. Oh, really? Um, whereas when we induce labor, a lot of times we're going from that nose and we're trying to force it to do all of the things. Before that, the changes take yeah, place. Yeah, in like a day versus six weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> it can be super intense. It can be really intense. Yeah. And just not, and, and we're just not as good at it as nature is. You know, the the order of things uh, is just not exactly the same. So sometimes um, before doing an induction, especially, you know, there's a lot to weigh and measure. Um, we didn't talk about some of, the, some of the most pressing causes for induction, which are uh, Christmas and New Year's. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah, you know wanting to deliver during the daytime hours and wanting a certain provider to deliver you who may be going out of town. And I mean, there's all zodiac signs, especially yeah. in the Chinese New Year. You know, you could be between a pig and a monkey. Yeah, exactly. It's a big difference. <laughs> you know, that lasts a lifetime. <laughs> but I don't know if it counts if you cheat. Yeah, and force <laughs> yeah exactly. Out. Exactly. Sort of a it's like, I was monkey. supposed to be a dog. That's right. They explain <laughs> the whole life. Yeah. I was supposed to be. Um, but you can you can in doing the the checking and measuring, you can also sort of check the cervix and 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 put that into the equation. Meaning, if it's not urgent that you be induced today, you might want to check the cervix and see: Am I effacing? Am I dilating? Is the baby coming down? Is the baby in a good rotation um, before deciding to or not to induce? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's lots of different ways to do induction. But before we get to those, let's take a quick commercial break and we'll come right back and talk about methods of induction with Dr. Allison Ho. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're continuing our discussion of labor induction with Dr. Allison Hill and our co-host, Kristen Palacy. So we talked about some of the reasons to induce or maybe some of the reasons not to induce and what induction and augmentation are. Now let's talk about how we get it done. Uh, there are certain things people freak out when they cross the due date. Yes, it is. <laughs> that is one of the hardest things for doctors the patients and their families. Like people get that date in their head and it's like if I am pregnant for one more second, I'm going to lose my right. and and their families too. Uh, but I've got family flying in from so and so. Right. Like I need to have the baby out of me by the time my mother lands from Florida, you yeah. know. And and also but sometimes the pressure comes from their from their provider saying, yeah. you know, and, and for, for example, we're here in California, midwives can deliver between 37 and 42 weeks uh, at home. But if you go past 42 weeks, they can't anymore. So then their whole birth plan changes just right. because they went past 42 weeks. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, you're obviously pretty laid back about due dates and, and how that's just a sort of date. And you mentioned earlier 42 weeks being a real reason for induction. But um, 
other obstetricians don't feel as comfortable going that long. Sometimes yeah. just till 40 weeks or 40 weeks and three days, five days, seven yeah, days. Yeah, no, I have many colleagues that literally on the day after the due date, there is a plan, you know, to induce. To induce. Yeah. And they're just people, uh, physicians are really uncomfortable with it. And it. Yeah, I think it's a lot of um, probably medical legal pressures and feeling that if something were to happen to this normal, totally normal, healthy baby, you know, I would be faulted that I let let the baby stay in. And I mean, there's I'm not exactly sure what it's all about. But well, I think medical legal is a big part of it because science and and courtroom don't always go together. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, if something does come up after 40 weeks, uh, that prosecuting attorney can make the case that you could have done something at 40 weeks to get this baby out healthy and you didn't. And so this is your fault. Right. And, and you know, jurors don't care that much about yeah. science. It doesn't, when when you have an injured baby, that speaks a lot louder than the fact that the science doesn't support having induced at that right. point. And uh, I will say, regarding the, the, the baby itself, there is not, one. if you have good dates, meaning you you started your prenatal care early on and you know exactly how far along you are, um, the baby isn't more mature at 41 weeks versus 40. Really, mm-hmm. at 40 weeks, the baby is kind of as good as it's going to get. Mm-hmm. It's more about the fact that the baby physically may not be ready to come out in terms of its positioning and things like that. So it's not that staying in longer makes the baby like a better breather or Mm -hmm. a better, like once you're at 40 weeks, you know your baby is going to be able to breathe on the outside and it's going to be able to digest food and do all those kinds of things. But it just may not be in the right spot yet. For birth. For birth. The birth can be better. Um, And then the other thing I think is also just, you know, uh, from a human perspective, you never, you know, you as a doctor are caring for your patient. You want the best for them and the best for their baby. And um, I think psychologically, you start to buy into that. Like, if anything goes wrong, this is my fault. This right. baby's healthy right now. Exactly. I owe it to them right. to get it out while it's healthy right yeah. now. Yeah. I think that's a big factor. Yeah. I mean, doctors are givers for the most part. We're very compassionate. So, um for that reason, though, sometimes leading up to the 40th week or certainly beyond it, people will do lots of different things to try and get labor going yeah. and uh, before even being medically induced. So there's all sorts of natural things. Um, are there things specifically that you recommend when people ask? You know, I tell people to do any anything that they're up for, um, whether it's having sex, whether it's going for a long walk, um, you know, supposedly there's like a salad in the valley that you Yeah, the coyote <laughs> salad. Yeah, exactly. The salad. I have a little book with yeah. all the people who were 41 weeks and ate the salad and went into labor within a week. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the, the statistically, mm. they were probably going to do that anyway. Yeah, um, it's like, what's in the salad? I know. Something in the dressing <laughs> that you can apparently now buy and take home as well. Oh. Um, I tried it and I had contractions right yeah, away. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but I'll tell you, actually acupuncture is kind of amazing because when there's already contractile activity happening, somebody's having irregular contractions, especially if it's been going on for a couple of days that aren't productive and they're not on the schedule. We see over and over again, they stick those needles in, in these two points by the sacrum and then during the session on the table, it just becomes a more normal labor pattern that turns into active labor Mm -hmm. and birth. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The other things like sex, walking, um, the data doesn't really support it. I mm-hmm. mean, I tell people, go for it if you want to. But um, bottom line is you're going to go into labor at some point. And a lot of times people will do something like, oh, they'll have sex. And then they went into labor and they think 
you know, did What's A cause B? Right. I mean, we just don't know. But statistically, it doesn't look like it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. But th- there's no harm in doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a go. Well, except that some people do it when they're – even though they're very uncomfortable. And, right. Um, yeah. Like if you're not up for it, if you don't feel like going for a hike and it's 100 degrees outside, then probably don't. Yeah. 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 Because, again, it's going to happen when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Plus it makes for a very, very busy day to go hiking and have the salad and have right, sex. Exactly. And, there's also other natural remedies that people talk about, um, like evening primrose oil and um, homeopathics that you you could discuss with your providers to see what they think about them. Yeah. Um, when it comes to medical induction, we have options, right? So There's a few different options, and most of the decisions for these options have to do with how um, soft and ripe your cervix is to begin with. Um, and secondly, the way your provider was trained. So some parts of the country use certain methods more frequently than others. Um, if you're already where your um, cervix is softening and you're a little bit dilated, um, and especially if you've had a baby before, probably the most common thing you'll be given is Pitocin, mm-hmm. oxytocin. But if you are first timer and the cervix isn't quite there, then usually you'll be giving um, some sort of either a prostaglandin, which is something that makes the cervix soft. Um, so before we jump into those yeah. medical options, what? Because uh, oftentimes I'll hear. Uh, doctors say, let's just sweep your membranes and, th- and yeah. see what happens. So sweeping in the membranes basically means that we do an exam of your cervix. And while we're doing the exam, we will put our fingers in the space in between your water bag and the wall of your cervix. And we will actually swing our fingers around in a circle and try to detach that area. Wait, so the the cervix has to be open. So the cervix has to be open. A little bit. At least maybe one or a centimeter or so in order to do that. So you, and you go through it to the other so side. You go of the through cervix. the cervix. So now you're in the uterus. You're in the uterus, exactly, uh, and you're feeling you're beyond the, the nose. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're past the nose. The yeah. nose is now opening up, and you're uh, yeah, and you put your finger up in there, <laughs> so and you're you not do nostril this. almost, yeah. And, and then, I will say, um, and you're circling around, and you feel the bag of water, mm-hmm, and you feel the bag of water. And, Does uh, it ever break when you do that? Every do you once in a while. Like, uh, yep. <laughs> you've your got nails a hangnail or, or something? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> usually not. They wear but, gloves. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I know they wear gloves. <laughs> I'm, but just I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that was a joke. In but, our country. But joke, usually, um, and I will say, uh, many providers, when they're doing, you know, when you go in for your weekly exams toward your due date, um, and especially if you're around 40 weeks, your doctor may very well be stripping your membranes without you even knowing it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. and, and that's a that's a touchy topic because yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily its own distinct procedure. No, it's, it's kind it of is a, a pelvic check that yeah, goes a little bit further. It's sort of like a cervical exam plus. plus. Yeah, and yeah. so sometimes like that's happening um, when you know, when you don't know it. So there are people that respond. And so the theory is that when the bag of water is separated from the like the lower part of the uterus, it releases those prostaglandins. And so the prostaglandins are what cause the cervix to soften. And they're very, very important for the early stage of labor. So when you do that physically, it releases this 
you know, local hormone called prostaglandins. And some people take off. Some people go right into labor with it. Not everybody. No, we've had a bunch like the next day. Yeah. So it definitely can work. Um, It's a relatively non-invasive thing to do. I mean, I think compared to having to be with an IV on Pitocin and all that kind of stuff, it's... um, but it's not a guarantee that's going to work. Right. I've had patients where I've stripped their membranes every week for a month and a half, and, and they still happens. won't go into labor. You know, so. Um, but it's a good. It's also good to know that sometimes people don't want to be checked at all. Right. And um, so they ask not to be checked. But yeah. it, it's also good to know that if you are going to be checked, you can ask not to be have your membranes. Right. Or and then again, and some people ask to have it done. on the other side you know? of the coin. Yeah, absolutely. like if they're thirty nine weeks and they're. Mm-hmm. Over all this, nice. and they want to get the show on the road. Sometimes they'll ask, "Will you do that?" Yeah, as well. Help so. me have a tourist. This did happen to me actually. With I, membrane sweeping. Yes, because I, I went into labor and I was probably at home for like I don't know, fifteen hours almost. And then I went in to get checked, and I was like, "I'm only going to be like two centimeters." We got there, I was only two centimeters. Oh, She's really? like, "Oh, let me check you," and I was like, "Okay." And then she said, let me check you again just to make sure because I think I looked defeated. I was like, oh, man, okay. And then my water broke. And that's how they oh, saw it. Oh, while she was checking you? The second time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like I yeah, was in labor. Races. Yeah. 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 And I was like, whoa. Huh. And, and the same, so the same is true, ch- uh, sweeping the membranes. And then another quote unquote method of induction is amniotomy, which is breaking the water bag. Mm-hmm. So that's something also that can be done. Again, you have to be a little bit dilated at least to, in order to do that. But Breaking the water bag, like stripping the membranes, um, also causes a release of prostaglandins. It's just and like popping a balloon? Yeah, exactly. With a little pin? With a little pin. Uh, <laughs> a little pin on hurt? a hook. Having the water, water bag. Yeah. You know, um, I wouldn't say it, the procedure hurts too much. It's just more that for... Some people they will then start hitting it pretty hard, and that's the pretty point quickly. of no return. Like once and, you yeah, operate, exactly, which you're is different than the sweeping the membranes. Because yeah. if you you have a sweeping of your membranes and it doesn't work, you can just hang out longer. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you do go with breaking the water bag, you're committed. You're having the baby. Yes. <laughs> did the for you, Kristen? Did the sweeping? What did it feel like to you, sweeping the membranes before your water broke? I mean, it was just really a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really hurt, but it's like I'm kind of uncomfortable, like in the middle. Different than a regular pelvic yes. check? Like a little bit more like you notice, you're like, whoa, okay, that's yeah, that's a little bit more than getting that, a check. That's the news. Yeah. So it didn't ever hurt. It was just then like after I was like, well, I Did it I break while later. she was still in there? Yep. Oh, wow. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, I that's mean, also sometimes how they it's saw like the ready meconium. to blow. Yeah. And so, you know, exactly. then it's it happens on its own a little bit. So if- if somebody wants or needs to be induced um, or is going to be induced and the cervix is not ripe, it's yeah. still thick. It's um, nose. It's nose. You can <laughs> use um, – you, you have agents. You were saying you have uh, drugs you can use too. Yeah. So we usually use prostaglandins, um, which often come as like vaginal suppositories mm-hmm. and things like that. And basically th- they are prostaglandins and they will help that cervix to not be a nose anymore. What's it and, called? Um, so the most common one we use around here is called Cervidil. Okay. Um, there's is also, it a suppository you place yourself or it gets placed no, for you? No, the doctor places it and you're in the hospital then with it. So, Once you have it, you yeah. have to be monitored Wondered. or you just – Depends on the provider. Okay. Um, but they but, want you nearby. But they want you nearby. And basically it's a suppository that goes in. You leave it in for 12 hours. Hmm. Um, Which side of the cervix? It's actually placed right behind the cervix, so in the what we call the posterior fornix, the area of the vagina behind the cervix. On the uterine side? 
on the no on the, on the in the vagina, vagina. Side. in so the vagina just all yeah the way back so against the it, cervix. all the way back yeah it has a string on the end and then you pull oh, it out tampon? yeah exactly <laughs> um, there's also um, how big is it it's about the size of a quarter oh okay yeah it's like a quarter with a string on it okay um, there's also a drug called misoprostol also known as Cytotec those are tablets like mm-hmm. actual tablets that are put inside the vagina. Downside with those, of course, you can't pull it out, you know, like it's in there. Oh, and um, it dissolves. And it dissolves, um, but it doesn't have the reversibility uh, of the cervidil. And its job is also to it's a thin di- out the Exactly. Cervix? It's it's another prostaglandin. Does cytotec cause contractions? As a result, yeah. So basically prostaglandins, because they, um, because they soften the cervix, they kind of make the whole system more susceptible to contractions. You know, like they they allow the your natural oxytocin receptors to be more ripe as well. And mm-hmm. so sometimes people will get a prostaglandin and they will just go right into labor and they never need Pitocin or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I would say the most common scenario is that somebody gets a prostaglandin and then once it's done its job and their cervix has softened, then they would get Pitocin. So it's interesting you say that. We had a patient um, who's on our YouTube series, The Real Midwives of Los Angeles, and her episode at this point hasn't aired yet. But she um, she got the Cervidel and had this major hormonal reaction to it. And labor started really strong yeah. just from the Cervidel, and she was not ready for it because I said, oh, we're just going to leave this <laughs> right. in for 12 hours yeah. and pull it I out. I mean, for many I would say the average experience is that people on Cervidil really don't feel much at all. Mm-hmm. Usually I would walk into their hospital room and they're in there watching a movie, yeah, the they're having dinner, they're, right. you know, just relaxing in there. But every once in a while we get somebody, and I think those people were probably on the verge of labor anyway or something, you know. big reaction. Yeah, yeah, and it's like they just needed a whiff uh, <laughs> and yeah. they were like off to the races. You ever try that here or just smell this? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I wish we could do things as a whiff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> an uncanny number of people, I don't know if there's a study that proves this or not, but after they get the Cervidel and have to stay there for a bunch of hours, they watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure why that uncanny, yeah. particular show. We should have some studies. Um, <laughs> what is the Foley balloon method? Yeah, so the Foley balloon is a is a mechanical dilator. Um, and basically what it means is that it is a long it is a long rubber tube with an inflatable balloon on the end. Um, and basically it is put, the tube is put into the cervix. So again, the cervix needs to be open about at least a centimeter, um, to thread the tube through. And then once the tube is threaded through, the balloon is inflated and then the balloon puts pressure on the cervix and releases prostaglandins. So So through meaning you're going through, through the one centimeter opening yeah, and you're inflating it behind Kind of right at the, the other nine centimeters. You're you're no, you're you only inflated the balloon probably inflates to maybe three centimeters in okay. size. And so but it's the pressure from the balloon on the cervix that causes natural prostaglandin to be reduced. Okay, be released. Pressure on the cervix like the baby putting pressure on exactly. the cervix would normally cause yeah. that. Yeah. Same kind of idea as the stripping of the membranes that you're just kind of irritating that lower part of the cervix. So it's kind of pushing the bag on one side and the cervix on the other side. So basically you just, you um, inflate the balloon to like three. 
Uh, yeah, with air or with water. Fluid. Um, and then it's filled up to about three centimeters. And then as the cervix softens because of its the natural prostaglandin release, um, it will, the cervix will also start to open a little bit. And at some point, this, the balloon falls out. Because so when now, you get to like three or yeah, four so once you get to three centimeters, out. the balloon falls out because now the balloon the is, is open. The cervix is open bigger. And then you can switch over then to Pitocin. And again, sometimes that's all people need. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot so of those people, are a lot of different ways to get the yeah. cervix soft yeah. and starting to dilate. Right. And then the Pitocin is to get the contractions going now that the there's no brick wall, now that right. the door's soft yeah. and so openable. So the, the uterine contractions are just much more effective if the cervix is soft because mm-hmm. exactly like otherwise they're just kind of pounding on something that's closed. That's closed. Yeah. Does, mm, yeah, sorry. go ahead. Does the cervix need to be at a certain place before you can use the balloon? Like the other ones, it could be the nose, but does this have to be like a certain? No, it, just as long as you can thread it through. Okay. Yeah. So as long as so the mechanical dilator is actually a pretty interesting concept um, because it's not medicine per se. You know, it's right. not a it's not a drug. So a lot of people do like it. Um, it's just not done in a lot of places. Again, it's sort of oh, a really? regional thing. Um, there are certain doctors that were trained with it and do it all the time as their first line, um, whereas other people don't. So that's something, though, um, most doctors know how to do it. It's just it might. It's also an interesting thing. Like if you, as a patient, you could always ask, you Our know, patient, your yeah. doctor, have you done, you know, what's your experience like with this? Could I try that? You know, right. and I think sometimes if patients bring it up more, it might become more popular. More of a policy. Yeah. yeah. Our patients seem to like it as a choice because it's not a medical. Yeah. Thing. Um, the cytotech dissolves. They don't like that they can't undo it. Right. Um, and in fact, it does sometimes cause hypercontractions right. that you can't stop because you can't just pull it out. Yeah. Um, and so. It's and there's in- some debate as well about doing, about using it, the prostaglandins in people who are trying to VBAC. Yeah, induction mm-hmm. in general. In general, uh, yeah. So in the prostaglandins, because it might just over jumpstart? That it, um, that what holds your scar together um, would also soften too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's more cases of uterine rupture with a prostaglandin induction. Yeah. Um, so then I'm going to something... back up a hair, oh. which is VBAC is vaginal yeah. birth after cesarean. So if you're trying to do that, trial of labor after cesarean, um, the one major concern that people have, the thing that could go wrong, is that the scar that was made in, during the original cesarean becomes weak and starts to open up. So, um, which is unfortunately called uterine rupture, which sounds very, very scary. Yes. <laughs> but um, it sounds like a roadside bomb. But <clears throat> um, so induction, sometimes you, you want to prevent over contracting like too much pressure against it or the prostaglandins you're saying could right. make it uh, that scar softer than it should be. Yeah. So there would something like then the balloon be an option for them? Right. Because the amount of the artificial prostaglandin that we give is probably a lot more than the way our body would release it naturally. So it could give them more of a chance. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. exactly. Mm. So I think the balloon dilators are pretty interesting. And again, it's actually not anything I was trained on because that was 25 years ago. Uh Um, But it's they're becoming a little more popular now. The Pitocin is a synthetic form of the body's oxytocin. Exactly. Oxytocin, the hormone that uh, aside from being the love bonding and orgasm hormone also causes contractions to happen. Yes. Um, and so how is that delivered? 
So oxytocin, um, it can only be delivered IV. So it's a liquid that is run through an IV. Um, it is uh, usually started at a low dose and then increased incrementally over time. Um, to higher doses. There's all sorts of different protocols in terms of how quickly it's increased, what's the maximum you can go to. Different hospitals have different plans for that, and how long can you be on it, all those kind of things. It's um, Every hospital comes up with their own protocols. Hmm. And it's it sort of has a, a quick half-life, right, if you needed to right. tone it back a little bit. Yeah. So oxytocin, yeah, it can be turned off, and um, and your body metabolizes it quite quickly. So if things are moving too too fast or the contractions just become uh, too strong or too close together, you can you can scale back a little bit it, and then exactly. hope that yeah. things so will the, normal So the out. idea is that in order to get somebody to deliver their baby, their contractions need to be two to three in a 10-minute window. Mm-hmm. So if somebody gets to where they're contracting every minute, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, then you go down on it. Or if they're only contracting one in 10 minutes, you would go up on it. So... Um, there's protocols that the nurses would follow for that. The question I get all the time is if somebody's going to be induced, do they have to have an epidural? Absolutely not. It's just hard. <laughs> because the uh, contractions are different than yeah. natural contractions? Yeah. And also, you know, the the other thing that happens when you go into natural labor is that your body prepares by releasing natural endorphins. Um, and things like that. And so when you are induced, the endorphin levels aren't as good. And so it's harder to tolerate the pain. Um, the other thing that's tough when you're induced is most of the time, depending, again, on your provider and your hospital, most of the time it's required that you have to stay in bed. You know, so you're laying on your back. Oh, even if you don't have an epidural. Even if you don't have an epidural because you have to be continuously monitored. Mm. <laughs> so you've got an IV, you're continuously monitored, you're laying in bed, your endorphins aren't kicking in, and now you just have to lie there and take it. So it's it's hard not. Do you have to be catheterized? Usually only if you get an epidural. So usually if you, they would let you get up and use the bathroom mm-hmm. or a bedpan. But Something then like right that. Right back to bed. But right back to bed. I so see. you lose out also on the ability to move around, and um, which I think is really important for getting that baby through the birth canal. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. that's another. You that's, know, maybe that's why all the other animals do it. Exactly. They walk around a lot <laughs> in labor. And like moves. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's. I mean, I would say a lot of people who get induced. Um, end up with an epidural just because of the circumstances mm-hmm. of it. And, you know, obviously gauging pain, like does, you know, is this more painful? That's always such a subjective question. But my guess is because you don't have your natural endorphins countering it, it probably does feel like it hurts more. Yeah. And I think also just by observation, the way the hormones interplay when labor starts and progresses naturally with your body kind of slowing down the contractions, even though you have the oxytocin releasing, you also have the adrenaline. Right. And that kind of inhibits the oxytocin until you feel safe. The adrenaline goes away and the contractions take it up to the next right. step. Whereas this, but you're just... pitocin doesn't work that yeah, way. Yeah. You're just kind of forcing it along at whatever speed is required to get the right number of contractions. Um, are there other contraindications to induction besides VBAC? Um, just anything where you couldn't have a vaginal birth. You know, so obviously like a placenta previa, uh, you know, an active herpes outbreak, you know, anything where you couldn't do a vaginal birth, that would be the only other time that you couldn't do an induction. Right. 
Um, hmm. I would say most people would not induce a breach okay. just because most people don't do vaginal breach, right. <laughs> obviously. But even the doctors but, who I know who deliver vaginal breaches, they, they usually don't do anything there. Yeah. The, the thing is, if your body will go into labor naturally, bring the baby down naturally, we'll catch the baby. Yeah, exactly. But we don't push it along. Right, right. That's a really good point. Uh, other questions? Augmentation. At what point do you decide to augment? Oh, and here's another question. I'll save it for the last okay. one. Okay. Um, for augmentation, so again, that is usually used when the labor process is slow. Um Theoretically, it's that if you're under some sort of pressure to get the baby out because um, maybe the baby passed meconium and you don't want it inside for a really long time. Um, if, like, Is that for, something you just see in the fluid coming In the out? fluid, yeah. So the, or if the mom has a fever and maybe is getting oh, an infection. I see. You know, you might not want the baby to be in there for too long. Time is of the essence. Yeah. yeah. So those kind of things are legitimate reasons for kind of helping speed it along. Probably, though, the most common reason why labor is augmented is because people just get tired of waiting. (laughs) Well, I just also see sometimes from the time the water breaks, there's a clock. Yeah. And the clock has to do with the theory of getting an infection. Mm -hmm. Um, But the truth is most people don't get an infection unless they're getting all sorts of vaginal exams. And and I I just also wonder to myself, if infection is the concern, can we just give antibiotics? You can. Not um, that that's the greatest thing ever. Right, but. right. Um, you can, but I will say the one thing is that if there is an, an infection going on, um, there's not great penetration of the antibiotics to the baby, to the baby oh, in utero. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, and again, the you know how much time, how much, how long is too long to wait? That's up for debate. But I think that is a legitimate reason if you know somebody is going to have a vaginal birth no matter what, and they're getting close, but now they have a fever. You know, you don't want the baby to get sick, sure. obviously. In weighing the decision whether to be induced or augmented, um, what are the downsides to consider? I think the main downside is that you may end up – induction is just the tip of the iceberg. Like you're going to probably end up with a bunch of things going on in your body, <laughs> you know, in terms of you're probably going to be in bed. You're probably not going to be able to eat. You're probably going to be having continuous monitoring. You're going to have an IV. You're most likely are going to end up needing an epidural, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and a lot of them end up in C-sections. So, you know, you increase your risk for all of those things if you induce. More intervention. Yeah, it's more. In, like just kind of, it's, it's like the cascade of interventions. Sort of like a gateway drug. Yeah. Now, if you're, <laughs> it is a gateway <laughs> drug. Um, if you've had a baby before, so if it's your second baby, um, your chance of being successful is like 10 times higher than if it's your first. With mm-hmm. induction. With induction. Um, and the, if your bishop score is high, meaning your cervix is already soft, your cervix is already open, the baby's head is low, um, you also have a very good chance of being successful. Right. It's so when people are really not, when their body really isn't ready, there's a very high chance you'll end up with a cesarean. Right. So those are the downsides to it. Sounds really informative. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I always learn a lot when you're here. Um, thank you. I wanted to thank you again for being here. Where can we find you online? I'm at www.laobgyns.com. 
laobgyns.com, and you have a book that people can buy And anywhere. I have a book, Your Pregnancy, Your Way. A fascinating book, and, and of course, it's a refreshing outlook on, on just the body's way of going to labor and giving birth and how we can assist that and facilitate that, but also kind of get out of the way and let your body do its thing um, unless we have to intervene. At home, thanks for listening. If you like our podcast, check out our blog documentaries and YouTube series at informedpregnancy.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid's gonna test my will. I got a lot to learn and my baby's too. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.